Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. All right, Jake, we're here again, another Injector Diaries episode. It's becoming one of our favorites, actually. Yeah, power on. I think we'll be on to sort of episode six, I think. I can't remember exactly. Six, six or seven. And today we're joined by the one and only... Laurie Robertson from California in the United States, also known on Instagram as, as Injection Expert. Injection Expert. We'll get into that as well. So, you know, part of the series is talking to injectors from all over the world, doctors, nurses, people that are doing interesting things. And um, like many of our guests that, that come on this show, I, I get a heads up from either my partner or someone of my one of my friends in the industry that goes, hey, you should check out this person. They're doing great things. And one of the things that attracted us to talk to you was a lot of the training that you do. You're very a big advocate for responsible training, teaching people thoroughly, making sure that people aren't rushing into things. And that's something that Jake and I are very aligned with as well. So we thought it made sense to have a discussion. So welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time and time zone challenges. We know you're a very, very busy person. So thank you and and welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Tell us about what you've been up to. Because every time we were trying to plan this, you're in Bahamas and New York and somewhere. (laughs) Was that pleasure or were you training? Um, Bahamas was pleasure. But um, in New York and everywhere else I fly is usually training or meetings. Fantastic. So I keep pretty busy. So I had a, I had like, I actually had to take my COVID test in New York because I was flying to Bahamas two days later and I had to make sure it was done and it was kind of crazy. But, yeah. but well, I'm, I'm back now for a little while. I don't train till Saturday. We've pinned you down. We've got lots of time to <laughs> talk about work, but tell us about yeah. your holiday. What'd you get up to? Anything, anything exciting? Did you just work on your tan and drink coconuts or what, what did you do? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, considering it's, considering it's, it's kind of winter in the Bahamas, yeah. it was about 75 windy, a little, a little overcast. Um, our last day there that we went over to, an area called the Blue Lagoon Island, and we played with the dolphins and we rode oh, segways. Wow. And then my husband and I said, you know, we went shopping, of course. <laughs> me. Um, and we my husband and I went over to downtown and we were looking around. We said, we want some good Bahamian food. We want something that's not a restaurant, just like home cooked stuff. What are we gonna do? How are we gonna find this? So a taxi driver happened to find us on the corner of the street and he said, Hey, you know, want to go somewhere? We said, Yeah, we want to go somewhere that's like down home cooking. So I just want to let you know that Bahamas does have a hood. Yeah. <laughs> we were in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought we were going to die. Um, <laughs> I I was really kind of nervous. I told my husband. I mean, we we met. We went to this place called the Fifty Fifty Griller, and a nicest man named Jason um, runs it. But you kind of walk into a backyard and a chain link fence, and you're like, um, oh gosh, you know. And, and the the grills are made out of uh, converted water heaters, and right. you know, you kind of wonder if they have running water. Ended up being amazing right amazing nicest people in the whole world best like jerk chicken jerk ribs amazing and um and it was funny because i looked down at my husband i was eating and i looked up at him and i said you know if this is our last meal it's yeah. probably it's better than i planned yeah <laughs> that's what i was going to say is that what made it taste so good was the fact that it could be your last meal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was um, it was the highlight of our whole week 
It right. was the like, you know, it makes you realize that people had don't don't have much. Sometimes people don't have much, and they're so thankful and so grateful and have these huge hearts and happy souls. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful that to me. Sounds delicious. Fifty fifty. Does, does that mean you might the fifty percent chance you might make out alive? Is that- Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> but it ended up being fine. Okay. It ended up being fine. It was so- awesome. Laurie, yeah. tell uh, the listeners who are listening, we've got people all over the world, including a lot in the States, of course. Tell uh, the people about you. What, what, do you. what do you do day to day? And I'm interested to know your, your job title. You're a family nurse practitioner. What is that? <laughs> yeah. I, we, we don't have ah. those, well, certainly not that subdivision of nurse practitioners. We have nurse practitioners, but just tell us what okay. a nurse practitioner is and then your own sort of subspecialty. Okay, so here in the United States, um, you basically have physicians, then you have what people, some people call mid-level providers. So that could be a physician associate or a nurse practitioner. And then you have different levels, a couple levels of nurses. So like a registered nurse and a a licensed vocational nurse. So basically in here in America, we as nurse practitioners can pretty much uh, function very similar to a physician. We don't need supervision. We can write prescriptions. In some states here, we have total independent practice, so we don't need a physician at all. Uh, so we can function as an independent practitioner. I have my my certification or my degree in family nurse practitioner, being a family nurse practitioner. So I can I can take care of the broad spectrum of age from baby all the way to geriatric. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get it in you know like say acute care or women's health. I got it in the family, so I can take care of the entire age groups. Okay, so actually that is broadly the same here yeah i think most of our nurse practitioners they have to choose a vocation like dermatology or uh, reproductive medicine whatever and and they all sort of subspecialize within that but like you said they're very autonomous they have prescribing rights and and effectively uh, their own sort of thing really yeah so did you um get into this field of work with the end goal of moving into an aesthetic pursuit or was it something that happened (laughs) along the way like tell us about the journey how did you end up as the injection no <laughs> no um never dreamed of doing botox ever ever i mean i spent 25 years in icu and er as a nurse and then spent a few years in family practice as a family practice nurse practitioner so i was taking care of a lot of issues and comorbidities the patients had never dreamed of doing aesthetics didn't really know what this was until one day a friend of mine um called me and said hey look there's somebody doing buddy botox you want to go? It's fine. I want to get one half off. So I said, okay. So we went and that's where I met my current partner, Dr. Kwok. Actually, this is way back in like 2006. And um, it ended up that I went there and I looked around the office and I hear this nice music playing and he has time to sit down and chit chat with us. And I go, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Because I never have never had the luxury of sitting down and hanging out with my patients. In family practice ER, I, I haven't. So it was really kind of nice to just sit down and get to know the practitioner and have a nice environment that's relaxing. And so I kind of started thinking about it. And then I went back to him and I said, Hey, are you hiring? And he said, <laughs> Yeah, actually, I am. And I said, Okay, let me go to a couple of lectures and conferences and learn more about this. And I did. And I said, You know what? I want to learn more about this. So he hired me. And I stayed working family practice and aesthetics for nine months before I let before I would kind of let go of family practice. And I have not been sorry one day. It's been, it's absolutely been my passion. It's a passion I never dreamed I would fall into. 
Wow. Crazy. That's a fantastic story. How, how did you train? I mean, I know you said you did a variety of things, but what was the first thing you did? <laughs> well, um, he put me into an office that had a PA that was pregnant and she was going to be going off. So she needed to tra- have, a, I need about six or eight months with her to train with her on lasers, injectables, all that good stuff before she went out on maternity leave. <laughs> so I had been there for about three months, two days a week before she started having problems with her pregnancy and had to go out on leave. So really, I only had a few days under my belt. So I had to read every article I could, pick up every book I could, go to every meeting, everything online, everything I could do to learn about this. And back then, we didn't talk about anatomy. No, it was like just inject. So anatomy, I didn't have to worry about anatomy because that really wasn't part of it. So like this now, thank God. So, um, so I really didn't have to, you know, um, learn a lot of that, but it was a lot of laser physics, a lot of, here's where you inject the, the Botox, here, 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 kind of like cookie cutter, yeah. kind of like, like a cookbook medicine. So I started to learn that. So I really kind of went through and learned a lot about the products and did a lot of that on my own. And I think that baptism by fire kind mm-hmm. of put me into the realm of my mind is always learning and thinking and striving and looking for more and critical thinking of why does that work or why does that not work or how come this can be different? So my mind is always in aesthetics thinking, thinking in those lines, in those, those directions. And I think that probably shot me into that direction. I, it was, I had to, to survive. <laughs> I think in the industry, there's, there's broadly two groups of uh, like nurses that, that get into aesthetics. They're people that, I guess, the newer generation that have grown up with these treatments being pretty normal and accepted and they start their career with nursing with the view to go on and do aesthetics or, or cosmetic cosmetic treatments. And then there's nurses like yourself who've come from therapeutic nursing where you've actually been in hospitals and it sounds like your career was, was quite stressful. You're dealing with very sick patients and, and real illnesses. I'm interested to understand what your mindset was because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that are thinking, wow, you know, this sounds interesting. How do I find out more? But then what's that in that that mental journey like for you moving to something that's not really required for health reasons. There's no sort of, in most instances, I know there's a little bit of crossover. There's no real functional or, or, or need for aesthetic treatments. And you're sort of having to, in some ways, completely have a paradigm shift to moving to a treatment that's based on wants and desires rather than medical needs. Exactly. And that's such a good point. And I didn't, I wouldn't be able to answer that if I hadn't worked in this field for a little while and seen what I've seen. I used to think that this stuff was vanity. It was kind of vanity. You kind of do it on make yourself look better or whatever. That's, that's not what it is. What we do here in aesthetics is we instill or help to enhance their self-esteem and self-confidence. We're really self-confidence boosters. And we bring out the best in people. They, It's there. It's inside. It's just hidden with maybe some wrinkles or acne scars or whatever the case may be, pigmentation, whatever it might be, that makes them self-conscious. And I think when we help what is bothering them, it helps them really kind of unfold and help their, it helps them feel better about themselves. And that is huge. That's huge. That's what I love about this position. About We have the ability to help people feel better about themselves. And I feel blessed every day that I'm, that I'm in this specialty because I realize that's really what we're doing. It's not all vanity. Um, some practitioners just want to get into it for the money. I say, don't just stay where you're working. Don't do it. Uh, patients know uh, if you're in it for the right reasons or not. 
They know. And it really, really comes across if we are there to help patients or not. If we're there just for the money, then um, they know they're just trying to sell things to them. And that's not what we're trying to do at all. We want to be there for them to help their self-esteem and to help them feel refreshed and feel beautiful and to feel like themselves again. And that's what's so fulfilling about this. Yeah, I think you pick that up quite quickly when you train people. I know you do a lot of training, so do I. And when you hear someone's motivations for why they're there, it very quickly becomes apparent if they're not actually passionate or they don't have that you know, innate curiosity to learn a skill and, and throw everything into it. They're just sort of pissed off with their other job. So that's why they're there. It's sort of like, a, you know, and to be honest, I had a bit of that in my own sort of career U-turn. So I'm not going to be a hypocrite here. There was a little bit of that. But actually, when I started injecting, I loved it. Um, when you did your first training yourself, when you look back on it, would you would you change anything? I know you've set up your own training school now and we'll come to that. But did you look back on it and think, oh, my God, I, I can't believe this is allowed? Uh, way back when, when yeah. I was first being trained by putting non-dissolvable fillers in the glabellar lines. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. It was, you know, it, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, and when you, you don't know what you don't know, yeah. you know, I didn't know that somebody could go blind by that. We didn't have that research back then. Yeah. So there are so many things, you know, how many nasolibifolds did we inject years ago? And nobody ever told us there was an artery under there. Hmm. So how in the heck I've gone this far with not having, hold on, let me knock on wood. Yeah. An occlusion. Um, I, I don't know. You know I, I don't know. Never Not had yet. Oh, wow. That's good. Can I ask how, how many years you've been injecting? We forgot to ask you. 15. 15 okay, years. awesome. I'm going to put you up into the master bracket of <laughs> injectors. You know, because I don't think I'll say, ever be a master. I think we're oh, always I learning. Use that term very, very loosely. But you know, the the purpose yeah. of these types of episodes is to talk to all levels of injector. Um, I'd love to get someone who's literally done a week of training and just see what they have to say. Yeah, because uh, it'll be interesting to to reflect on the things that you know Laurie says and the other injectors. You know, have things really changed or or not? I suspect closer to not. So yeah, it'd be interesting. Now yeah. you are a trainer for a number of companies. Um, I know you train for Mint Threads. I know you're a trainer for Galderma. Any other companies uh, in there? Um, I train for, um, I'm a speaker for several. Um, I speak at conferences for like Elastin Skincare and uh, Vivace, radio frequency medical devices, things like okay. that. But the main pharmaceutical companies are is Galderma with yes. the products that Galderma provides and then the threads mint. I train a lot of mint on and a lot of mint threads. Okay. And and how did that come about? Like, you know, we have lots of people on who have trained, but we've never really delved into how you became a trainer or why you became a trainer. So tell us about that. That's such a good question. I had been injecting for a few years and um, my Galderma rep years ago um heard me talk and listened to me explain things to patients and saw me inject. And she said, you know what, Lori, would you, would you ever consider being a trainer for Galderma? And I said, absolutely. You know, I love the products. I, I, I love the safety component of the, of the products. I love the company. It's a very, a very education-based company and a safety-based company. I said, you know, I would, I would love to train for Galderma. So she put me into the the queue of, uh, of people who would be, you know, recommended. And I ended up becoming a trainer for Galderma. And that was back in maybe 2012. Mm-hmm. So I've been training for them for a long, long time. Um, and those, their products that I, that I truly believe in, that I, I've never had a problem with them, you know, as far as, you know, sometimes you hear about, 
uh, inflammatory nodules and things like that. And I've never had a problem with them. So, you know, as you get to use products and you guys have TSL and people have different things all over the country, but as you, as you begin to learn more and more, pro- uh, more products, inject more, you get to trust them. Mm-hmm. And if you trust them, you kind of keep them in your arsenal, you know, <laughs> you keep them in your portfolio and you kind of add little things. And I always say when you first, when you first start learning something, be it lasers or, or fillers, it's kind of like having a baby and you're kind of learning how it behaves. What does it do? How does it, you know, how does it react in this circumstance? And once you kind of trust it, you get to know it and you get to love it or not love it. <laughs> so, so I think that, I think it's, I always kind of equated to having a kid, you know, you're like, you don't know who this thing is. It's just screaming. And then you get to know it, you get to trust it and you get to see what, how it reacts in certain circumstances. And that's very much how lasers and fillers are. I trained also a few years back for Allergan. Um, and then um, they had changed in the product line and kind of added um, some products that kind of, there were a few side effects I didn't really want to deal with. So I um, stepped away from that, mm-hmm. but um, it's been fun through the years. Yeah. And how do you, how do you actually start becoming a trainer? Obviously you've got your own set of skills and a company will approach you and say, Hey, we'd love to have you on board and, and train new injectors or people that are looking to further their education. But how do you train to become a trainer? Like what additional education do you need to arm yourself with? And even just mentally preparing for, yeah. you know, educating people. And I'm assuming that, you know, nurses and doctors get into this industry to help people. So you've already got the right mindset, but like transitioning to teaching someone how to hold the needle, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Um, oh, I take a Valium first. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it's tough. So I like I I tell my staff I swear I'm like I'm never going to teach cannulas unless you like give me a Valium or something because I get so frustrated um, and I don't know if I have enough patience because people can be so rough but I just have to literally grab their hands and go stop stuffing it in there. You need to be gentle. So sometimes it's it's hard. The majority of people that I train though are are nurses, doctors, PAs that that want to learn, they're anxious to learn, they listen, um, and they really, really try their best. There are certain providers who really want to do this, but they just don't have it. Um, And Jake, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say this, like they just don't have that artistic eye and they just kind of don't have that hand-eye coordination. You're like, oh gosh, you're never going to get this. You know, you wish they would, but it's just not going to kind of connect. Um, And there's others that can be like yesterday in our school, I had a nurse who's never injected before. I gave her a syringe of filler and helped her along and she got it. She had good dexterity, good eye-hand coordination. She could feel it. She was thoughtful in how she was injecting and where the where the needle was going and what tissue plane she was in. I go, you are going to get it. You're going to. You just need time on tissue, and you will be great. So I know Jake, you do a lot of, of t- you know classes too, and so you can kind of see those individuals who you think are really going to kind of flourish if if they take it upon themselves and invest in themselves to educate themselves. It's mm. not going to be given to them on a silver platter. And I see that all the time. Practitioners will just sit back and wait for it to be given to them. And I tell you, I've gone back to train nurses who I trained eight years ago. And I thought, wow, they're going to be so good now. This is amazing. I go back and they're just as dangerous as they are today yeah. as they were before because they haven't gone to one stinking class. Yeah, yeah. So um, I always tell patients, just because someone's been doing this 10 years doesn't mean they're not dangerous or nor they know what they're doing. It yeah. doesn't. A practitioner has got to to invest in themselves and continually educate, continually read articles, continually go to conferences. You've got to seek out education um, and keep your critical thinking going. Because um, like I was questioning an article on master injection that was put out by an, an Asian physician. And 
um, with Sebastian Cotofana. And I said, you know what? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Um, so I don't think a deep way to inject masters is the way to go. And we went and we went and dissected masseters. I said, look at there's a tendon in the middle of this. There's a you know there's a tendon, a sheath in the middle of the two layers of the masseters. And I said that ma- that deep master cannot protrude through that tendon and give you a horn. Yeah. So people are injecting too deep and not. And if you inject all deep, that's where you get the horn. So Dr. Professor Cotabano is going to do a research. He's actually doing a research paper on that now. But my point of bringing this up is. Don't always take everything um, as as the Bible. You know, sometimes you use your critical thinking and get your thinking cap on and go, hey, why? What's going on? And really think out of the box. And that's what's really going to keep this the specialty growing. Yeah. yeah. So I know you've got a question there. Just to add to that, I, I totally agree. The problem with aesthetics and, and, and medicine to some extent is there's a lot of dogma. And um, you know, like you said, Sebastian Cotofana's work is fantastic, but Sometimes you read a paper and, and including some of his, and they've got 14 subjects in the study and you go, okay, well, that's very interesting, but is that really applicable across the United States or uh, into Asia or across the world? You know, a, a lot of injectors just hang on to, you know, a, a journal's papers, every word. And then, you know, like you said, you, you read a paper and said, well, that's just crap. It just doesn't make sense. Right. So always having that critical thinking is so, so important. And not only that, but, Try things out, you know, look at the evidence yourself, do it. And if you yeah, start, should we, should, we, should we bring up that consensus paper on don't aspirate or should we not bring that up? Oh, we're going to get to that. That's one of my favorite questions. Um, okay. That's one of our yeah. last questions. Yeah. So we'll do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know me, you know, like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> you raise an interesting point, which is, you know, you, you could be in the room with a very experienced, highly credentialed uh, practitioner, could be a doctor or a nurse, and some people just don't get it. Um, but they can still go out and they can inject and they can go and do courses, but they're not sitting an exam as far as I'm aware, certainly not in Australia. I'm not, you know, hundred percent sure with the United States. So c- correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but then it makes it very difficult for um, patients to be able to discern who's going to be appropriate. I mean, all you can go on is word of mouth and what someone has on their website, right? There's no piece of paper that says this person has passed these competencies and they're safe and so on. So what do you think the solution is? And it's probably a longer question. I'm sure Jake wants to add to this and he's got his own sort of sub questions onto this as well, but it is a bit of an issue because all that practice, all that patients have to go on is what you, as I said, what you've got on your website, there's no, there's no standardized training program to, to someone can go, yes, this person has passed. They've got good high end and high hand eye coordination. What do you think the solution is for this? And it's not just a problem here. It's, I think it's all the people we've spoken to around the world. It is a concern everywhere. Well, yeah, and I hear it like in Europe when beauticians can inject, it scares the bejeebas out of me. Um, But I I, I totally agree. It it is the Wild West here in America. It's the Wild West. You can have a license, um, a nursing license, and you can go and inject dermal fillers. You don't need another certification. And, And I feel sorry for the patients. The patients don't know what to ask for. So I, like on my Instagram, I put up like, how do you know, what, what questions do you need to ask your provider? They need to ask that provider, not how long they've been injecting, but do you do research? Do you teach? Do you read? Do you go to conferences? What do you do for continuing education? You know, um, all those different questions that tell a patient that you are, that you're passionate about what you do. 
Because if you're not going to invest in yourself in something that you're not passionate about, um, if you're there to make a buck, then you're not, you don't care. You're not going to do any extra education. So I think that, um, I think we need certifications. We do have something here in the United States that's put out by ISPAN, which is the International Society for Plastic and Aesthetic Nurses. It's called CANS certification, the Certified Aesthetic Nurse Specialist. Great test that they require a lot of hours of hands-on um, procedures and re- and uh, education before you can sit for the exam, and you've got to, it's got to be research recertifiable. So it's a it's a great start. The only problem is that it only allows nurses to take the exam, and those nurses have to have medical directors who are either plastic or derm. So that cuts out everybody who's got a medical director that's family practice or something else. So it's kind of pinholed. Uh, I think there's another organization called AMSPA here in America that puts on great conferences. I think they're going that direction of possibly having a great uh, ability to have educational where like anatomy courses, they might have aesthetic immersion, have their didactic courses where you put people through certain vetted courses and you know what they've seen and learned and then they can take an exam. Not It doesn't matter what degree they are. It matters what their foundational knowledge is. So I don't care if it's a nurse or a doctor, you take the same test because we got to know the same thing in aesthetics. Um, the problem is you don't know their expertise. You don't know their hand-eye coordination. You don't know how they inject. So that's the tough part. You can get the foundational knowledge in there, but that expertise is a tough is a tough one. So that's another that's another road to cross. Yeah. Do, do you think the problem, and particularly the states, is probably the obvious one, is that Every state's got its own rules, regulations, um, who can inject. I know that certain states are slightly looser, some are much stricter. So presumably that's going to be a state-by-state state, uh, potential qualification, If it, even if it does come around. It would be very hard to to have like a pan-American qualification for injectables. I just don't believe that they would agree to that. Well, it would be, you would probably not be able to sit for the exam unless you were licensed in your state to, to inject. Okay. So that's how we, with our courses, if you have to be licensed in the state that you inject to come to our courses. So right. I'm sure it would be something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that seems exactly. like some promise. Um, tell us about your, your, how do you got into training with mint threads? And, and I'd also love to ask you, you're probably one of the only or, or few uh, guests we've had on the show who actually sort of enjoys threads, I guess. We've had yeah. you know, a lot of people with negative experience or, disappointment with results and so on. So I'd love to hear, you know, the other side of the story. So tell us about when you first started yeah. using threads and, and again, your training journey. Yeah. So the, that's, that's a slow road too, as far as I, I think people need to use cannulas before they go to, go to, go to threads because you need to know the plane of tissue you're in. And, and it's, it's something where it's, uh, some of the threads are forgivable. Some are not forgivable. So some of them are cannulated to where you can go in and out and find the plane you want to go in. And then you can lay, put the thread there and take the cannula out. And you're good. Most of the threads are on, on a tip of a cannula where that you can't go in and out. You have to go one plane. And if you get in the wrong plane, you're kind of stuck. So I think the provider really has to have a good feel and a good vis- visualization of the plane of tissue that that cannula in is in. Yeah. Um, so it takes a while to learn that. It's not that people don't make mistakes, but um, I love the mint threads. I've tried others, but I really kind of keep going back to the mint threads. And I think for a few reasons, because they make their own threads, they manufacture them and they package them. They aren't manufactured in Korea and then sent over to other countries. And then those countries just package them with their own labels. And you don't know what the 
um, if they've been exposed to heat or humidity and what the integrity of those threads is. So Mint packages them, they triple seal them, which is a pain when I want to open them, but they triple seal them and I get them and the integrity has been ex- excellent. I've never, never had a thread break. I've never had it fall apart. I've never had a problem with Mint threads. So like I said, it's like having a baby, you get to learn it and you get to trust it when you don't have any problems. So um, Mint is very robust. They're nice and strong. I and there's lots of threads out there that are very good too, but you get you need to get to know it. You need to know how what how the anchoring barbs are, how the lifting barbs are, where they're located, how much can I cut off so I don't cut off too much of my anchoring barbs. Um, can I tie them? Can I not tie them? Uh, there's so many different things to learn about about threads that what's important is that somebody looks at it, they feel it. They look at the, the the picture of it and they know how many millimeters are, are barbed and how much there isn't barbed and how big the barbs are and how what size the, the actual um, thread is, like a 1020 in suture size. And, and once you know that, you can visualize it in the tissue. And, and I think a lot of what we do in aesthetics is visualization. We're always visualizing what tissue we're in. So I think a lot of people run into problems when uh, they don't know what plane of tissue they're in and then it kind of can pucker and cause problems. Um, again, with the mint robust, I, we've had patients that are super, super happy. So the biggest thing to me is I don't care how much I pay for something. As long as my patients are happy and they're safe, I'm golden. I don't care how much I got to pay for the thing. I want to make sure it's going to work and I want to make sure they're happy. I want patients to get what they pay for. And so far that's been hundred percent with our mint threads. We've never had a problem with them. Knock on wood again. Um, and there's two of us in my office right now that do threads all the time. Patients are super, super happy. What what sort of patient do you think you know is suitable for the? I'm assuming we're talking about lifting threads here rather than the the, the little PDFs. Yes. You know, when when you're just looking at a patient, just eyeballing them, how have you? How do you make the decision, or or do you have to get hands on and feel the laxity and so on? I do both. Yeah, I do both. I will. Yeah, I'll do both. I'll I'll get hands on and kind of feel their tissue. Um, someone who I would not be a good candidate would be somebody who has a lot of photo aging and thin skin, real crepey skin, because those people, if you pull anything back, they're just going to wrinkle up like a, like a book, like yeah. a little, like a window shade. So those aren't, so I'll do something like a PLLA or some biostimulants on them to help some dermal thickening before I would do threads on them. Yeah. Um, many people are candidates for threads. I would say anybody that's probably 35 and over may be a candidate depends on lax tissue laxity depends on what you need to do to lift i always tell all my patients this is not a facelift this is a perk it's a nice little perk so when i under promise and i over deliver they're even happier because it's really more than a perk it's almost like this beautiful lift that they get um, it will kind of calm down in the first month. It kind of relaxes a little bit, but it stays lifted for a good year to year and a half. We tell our patients to come back once a year and do it once a year because the threads dissolve within six to eight months, but the collagen's there that's built around them. And why do you think that it's so much, um, so many differing opinions or people that are so negative on them? Do you think it's patient selection? Do you think it's incorrect technique? Do you think that um, people are overpromising and underdelivering? I mean, because you hear a lot of people going, oh, you might as well just get a facelift. Um, we've had plastic surgeons on here who, you know, talk about the difficulty of, you know, wading through these threads when they're sort of dissecting, you know, deeper layers of, of the face and, and so on. So we've heard all sorts of, of interesting stories. So what, what what is it that you think that goes goes wrong and what would be your, I guess, your headline tip to get it right and integrate it successfully into your practice? 
Yeah. And you know, the people who I see that are poo-pooing it are um, usually people who love to do surgery and they make their money doing surgery, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Um, but if you think about it, think about it, Um, we're only putting six or eight threads in tiny little one Oh threads, two Oh threads. That is not enough to cause fibrous buildup that would cause any change with the surgery. So I would question someone who would go, oh my gosh, I've got to cut through all these threads. Maybe maybe it was immediately after threads were put in there and they happened to see them and they'd cut through them. But this is not going to be an issue with facelift at all. These surgeons are so used to doing a facelift on somebody who's had years of, say, PLLA or, or biostimulants. That causes fibrous. That's a fibrous buildup. That is a that's a, a pan facial fibrous buildup. That is going to be harder to cut through than six or eight tiny little threads that are gone that are really just the patient's collagen that's left over. So yep. if you think about it, there's nothing. That, uh, good luck finding a thread when you do a facelift. I would I would be shocked if they can even find something like that yeah. because it's only the thread of the collagen that's left. It's interesting. I'm obviously not a facelift surgeon and I don't do threads, but you know when you use a cannula in that sub um, uh, dermal plane sort of across the lateral face and someone has had sculpture and they have had threads, you can feel that grittiness. It's, it's pretty obvious, but like you said, if you, if you, if you're opening the face with scissors, can't imagine that being a a particular problem, you you know, slightly more challenging, but not, it's not going to preclude you doing it. Yeah. yeah, and I and I noticed like what you mentioned uh, when we're when I'm trying to use a cannula for someone who's had a lot of biostimulants, mm-hmm. I will usually use cannulas. But after a few sessions, they have enough collagen one and three built up that I sometimes cannot get the cannula in there. I've got to go to a needle, not with threads, but with um, biostimulants. I see that oftentimes. You're totally right. Yeah. yeah, and what about PDO threads? They've been going crazy here in Australia. Every every Instagram page that I look on in this industry, people are, are sort of doing threads all over the place on the body, the face, the neck. Um, and obviously they are different to the lifting threads that we've been talking about um, just now. So they're designed to stimulate collagen rather than create you know, a big lift. So do you have much experience mm-hmm. with those? And, and what's your general, general thoughts on those on the face and in, in and around the body? Yeah, I think those have a place. I don't do nearly as much of those. Um, they are just, they're called smooth threads. And they are just a straight little, like almost like a little hair that's in that needle. And you just stick the needle in and take the needle out. And it's the the little thread just stays in. And it just irritates the tissue enough to um, create a little collagen around it. They usually will dissolve within about a month. And then you put them again. So you're just building, it's, you're just taking time building collagen. Um, so when you think about it, when you put it in areas that have crepey tissue, you are going to do a little bit of dermal thickening. You are going to build a little bit of collagen there and do a little bit of dermal thickening. So I think they have their place. Um, I don't use them a lot. I'm not into those hundreds of threads in the neck. I mean, I will throw some hyperdilute radius or some something else in the neck, um, do some radiofrequency treatments to help thicken the dermis. I'm not one to put thousands of threads in, smooth threads. Not only does it hurt the patient, but they bruise a lot like and pe- patients sometimes are not happy with all that, that, that bruising. When we do the deep foundational threads, they don't bruise at all. They can go somewhere the next morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I think you've already answered my question, but um, you know, you use lasers, you use all of the range of uh, fillers, including biostimulators, radius you've mentioned, and you're doing lifting threads. So do you think that a lot of people are using the PDOs because they don't really have another tool? They don't have a laser and they don't, you know, they're maybe not trained in the other fillers. So they're sort of trying to fit a new indication in that kind of works sometimes, but it's not reliable. That's my take on it anyway. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, that's a good thought. I, they probably don't, you know, if everything's, you know, if you, if you only have a hammer, everything's a nail. Mm. So possibly, possibly that they might not have the lasers. They might not have the radiofrequency microneedling. They might have not know how to do uh, some of the other biostimulatory treatments. And this is the only thing they really have to really kind of stimulate that superficial dermis. So, yeah, and it really does get that real superficial component of the dermis. Sometimes the sculpture will get you that subdermal aspect. So, um, they hit a little bit of different areas, but, but yeah, they might be doing that instead of uh, other treatments. You're right. Yeah. You are obviously someone that is very well educated and you've got strong opinions on things and you look at the evidence and you think for yourself, that's sort of quite obvious. I'm looking at your Instagram and even the short time we've been talking today. Um, when you go and train for a company, there's obviously certain things that they want you to say certain, you know, they want you to, fo- you know, sort of follow the mantra of the company and, and do things the way that they want them done. How do you reconcile that with someone that has such strong ed- educated opinions on things when a company might ask you to do something or, you know, ask you to go along with something that you potentially have an issue with and how do you sort of manage that relationship? Great question, David. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> Great question, David. Um, so, so. <laughs> I did used to train for a company that um, ended up having a product come out that had a lot of adverse events and I didn't feel comfortable teaching uh, and utilizing that, using that product anymore. So I just quit training for that company. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the places, if, if I don't, if somebody's values don't align with mine, if I don't see the, those values aligning, I, I'm not going to be with that company. I, I feel very strongly about that. I think it's patients first. I think we owe patients that safety and we owe that honesty with them and not to blow off like, oh, this is pretty safe when you know there's a lot of issues with a product. So there are products I won't use. Now, um, I think I think that being said, we, um, we all, uh, the companies I work with, I am held to account, I, ha- I am accountable to, to training within their guidelines. So say I train for Galderma a lot. Now there's FDA approval in the United States for certain fillers in the nasolabial folds, certain things in the lips, certain things in the cheeks, you know, so, and certain size needles, and it's got to be on label. So when I go and I train for those companies, nothing goes against my grain. Nothing goes against me, uh, what I want to do at all. I'm just limited in how I can train each one of those products, um, which, which isn't a problem. It's just, um, I think sometimes when I put different needles and cannulas on things it's I, and put them in different places, it's even better. So that's why I do private trainings because I can share what we can do more with those products rather than just the limited FDA on-label um, treatments. So um, I don't mind at all training and they kind of limit it, but they're not telling me uh, anything that would go against patient care or against ethics at all. It's just li- kind of pinholed. We're pinholed into certain things we can do with certain products in certain places here in America. Wow. Yeah. You, you smashed that curveball out of the park. That's, that's gone <laughs> out. It's, it's out of the stadium. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I mean, I, I agree, you know, like the, the way I explain it, of course, I might not do everything how, how I train in an Allegan course in my own room, but at the end of the day, I'm teaching one safe, reliable uh, FDA or TGA approved method. And, and then, you know, it gives people skill to build on and get more fancy and do more advanced things that maybe are off label. And that's totally fine in, in certain settings, but you've got to teach someone a baseline somewhere, right? 
So exactly. yeah, I agree. Can we just pick up on, on your comment earlier? And uh, I don't want this to be controversial that, you know, we're, we're good friends here. Um, you said that you had some problems with, you know, another company's fillers. Was that a personal thing that you encountered or was that just a general chit chat across the, you know, the network? Um, it was both. It was, I started seeing a lot of, uh, research about, uh, some of the products causing issues. Uh, mm-hmm. delayed onset issues. Yeah. And I started to become more uh, concerned about that and learn more about the product than I had originally known. Like I wanted to know more specifically, what kind of, how is this cross-linking different? What's different about this? Why is this causing some issues? Uh, so I learned more about that. And when I realized that that propensity was there um, with um, a lot of patients and there were a lot of issues, then I decided I wasn't comfortable uh, injecting that into my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really kind of want to back off and not, um, teach th- that anymore because I, 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 if I'm going to choose a product, I'm going to choose one I have never had a problem with. Yeah. So, enough. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. That, you know, again, I hear these stories, and and Instagram's amazing. You you share ideas and thoughts and problems occasionally, and it's it's not an unknown myth. I, I hear it a lot, but um, yeah, my personal practice, I, I don't experience it, and so, you know, I'd love to know where these things come from, and I'd love to know, you know, well, if it doesn't happen to all injectors around the world using that same product, well, what is it? Is it the subpopulation? Is it um, sterility? Well, you know what? I think, I think Jake, I think you're hitting the ball. I, I met with um, the president of that company a couple months ago mm-hmm. and said, look, you know, I mentioned um, a few years ago in an advisory board that I think that we need to pick the patients more carefully, uh, who this product goes into medical history wise. And we need to make sure that the, in, that the trainers train the depth of placement, that we stay away from muscles with it. Yeah. And you're probably injecting where it needs to go, and you're not putting in people with autoimmune disease and A to P, you're, you're choosing your patients correctly so maybe you're not having any issues. I don't think the product is bad. I think it's different. And I think we need to respect it differently because it's made different. Yeah, so I like I say, it's I say just put it on shelves and put implant on there and just respect it. And you choose more carefully who you put it into and their medical history, and you choose uh, your planes of tissue very carefully. You make sure that you uh, don't get it in a muscle and and usually you'll probably be okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to qualify that, you know, we've, we've discussed this uh, at length, I think even on the podcast, I think we, Lee mm-hmm. Walker and I were talking about delayed onset nodules just as generality. And, you know, he manages complications uh, a lot and he's quite happy to admit it happens with all products in his experience. So, you know, I think you're right. I think that, you know, these are injectable implants at the end of the day and, you know, not everyone is suitable or, or, or it's a, it's a time dependent issue. So if you've got a tooth problem, don't do fillers end of regardless of brand and so on. So I've certainly become much more not defensive, but a lot more cautious and picky with who I'll treat and, and delay people and move them around occasionally. And you know, so far I've dodged some bullets, but it will happen one day. I'm not perfect. And, and fillers aren't perfect and medicine isn't perfect. So yeah, it's, it's a good conversation to have. And yeah, thank you for being honest. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And also, you know, progression of time is progression of knowledge. And if you look at products, say like sculpture, which is again, going through, you know, very popular again in, you know, people sticking it in their butt and all sorts of interesting places. <laughs> um, but when that first came out, we didn't really know how to inject it properly. We weren't diluting it. 
properly. It wasn't being reconstituted for long enough. It wasn't being put in the right plane. And you got all these sorts of issues. And now they figured it out and it's a very safe, effective procedure. So, you know, we get better at these things with time. Yes. But let's talk about your training school. Tell us all about it. You do it with your medical director, Dr. Gideon Kwok, and it's called the Aesthetic Immersion. Yes. How did it start? What's yes. the philosophy behind it? And yeah, just give us give us the rundown. Thank you. So, you know what, for years, um, I mean, I've been to training for years and I go out there and I see so many injectors who really, really need that comprehensive foundational training. A day is not going to do it. You know, you can't learn everything in a one day course and think you're going to be a safe injector. So I, I saw that so frequently that I just, it was in my mind, I really wanted to, to create a school. So when I moved into my office here in Southern California, I have 4,300 square feet and there's two big back rooms that it used to be a surgery center. So I have an OR and a recovery room that was, there were two big, big rooms that we thought Gideon and I talked and we said, you know what, we could, we could put the school back here. So we kind of started that going and putting that, our, our mind together and thinking, what we what can we do? And we started really kind of brainstorming and we thought of the name for the school. And then we started a curriculum, you know, brainstorming our curriculum and we have a course that's kind of our flagship, one of our flagship courses, and it's called the Foundations of Advanced Aesthetics. And it is uh, totally online right now. We, with COVID, you know, that did help us. We flipped the switch and we went online with everything, webinars, and we were ready to flip the switch in our studio. So that was really well. But we, we took the course that we used to teach in one day, in about nine hours in one day. And literally, our students were glassy-eyed by lunch because <laughs> it was so much information. So we took that and we put it up into 19 modules online. And it takes like 12 hours to go through. We have a little test at the end of it and they get continuing education units for it, but it's extremely comprehensive. So he and I put this together and it's all videotaped. So it's kind of like Ricky and Lucy and, you know, he injects needles and I do cannulas and he's a cowboy and I'm super conservative. So you see different (laughs) ways of two people doing things, but we respect each other. We both have good outcomes and we respect each other's choices in, in our practice. So we put that up online and um, that's it, that's just taken off like wildfire. And I think we didn't realize that, you know, he's been doing a couple of years longer than I have, like 18 years. I've been doing it 15 years. But when we started talking about everything, we really shared every pearl we've learned. Now there's, it's uncensored. It's unfiltered. We, we banter back and forth. Like I, I like this. Nope. You like this. And we really, it's more entertaining and we really share every pearl we've learned. There's nothing we've held back. So we want our students to really understand what, you know, I did that wrong and that's why I did that wrong and hear why, why I do this now. So we want our students to pick up on that. And we didn't realize how much more comprehensive our courses than a lot of other courses that have been offered because we haven't been to those, but our students have. Yeah. So when they come in and like yesterday, I, we, I asked them, I said, did you guys learn something? They're like, oh my gosh, you know, I've been doing this five years and I've learned so much in these courses. I've never, I've never been taught this before. So it makes me, it makes us feel really good that the students value it and they really enjoy it. So, um, so it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's really, it's really cool. So we're, it's growing. We're going, we're going to take our show on the road and we're going to be doing classes around the country and we're going to be doing course courses with some of the conferences. We're going to be aligning with some of the conferences and doing our courses at an abbreviated form of our courses at conferences. So we'll get more, we'll get more trainers educated and safer, which is really good. That's fantastic. Are you going to go to MCAS in uh, Paris this year or? 
not. I wish. No, I don't think we'll have time to go there. I was going to say, I'll come and no. check it out. I'll come and <laughs> um, when you're doing your, your, your training course, uh, and you mentioned you can't do it in a day, so you've got a lot of online content pre, pre-practical day, I guess. Then what happens? You know, what, what is the, the learning pathway that you guys suggest? And, you know, what holes are still missing? You know, because I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, what is the gold standard? You know, we, we, we continually circle back to this question and I don't have an answer, um, but you're running a course. So yeah, what, yeah. what do you think is working and, and maybe still what needs tweaking if, if you had the budget or all the time? Well, over and over again, we have both, we have a lot of new injectors in our course and we have some injectors that have been working, been injecting probably two to five, maybe eight years in our courses. Um, but I think that the didactic online, letting them learn at their own pace and rewatch. We give them, a, we give everybody a year to rewatch the courses. So it's not like they get it for a month and it goes away. They get to rewatch it for a year, which helps that. It just helps reinforce reinforce that information. We send them a book. They get a whole book. It's like an inch thick, um, but they get a whole welcome kit when they sign up. So they get to take notes in the courses. So they get to go back through everything and read and kind of re- reinforce it. Um, after that, we do require that course for people to come and do our hands on. So they, we have to know how much they have learned foundationally, hopefully, and at least taken that and taken the tests after that, then they can come to our hands-on. And for our hands-on course, we only allow 10, maybe 11 students in a day because each of us have maybe about five students, maybe six at the most. So we have one hour, one-on-one with each student. So we can mentor them, hold their hand, really be close and teach them what to do, how to, how to do it. I see so many courses where somebody's up on a stage and they're injecting, there's 50 people down there and they're like, okay, here's a cheek. Okay, go do it. That's not safe. You, you need to be thoughtful when you inject. You need to be, you need to think about the tissues. What's under that? That's why cadaver courses are so valuable. You need to think about what's under there. What am I touching? What's that cannula touching? What's that needle touching? So um, I think that hands-on one-on-one is so important. I think what's missing is uh, that follow-up. Our students always want more hands-on. They want more time on tissue and they need more time on tissue. So because of that, we've started an AI lab that is for people who have more experience who have already, or have already taken the courses and um, can come back and do more hands-on. But these, these newer people uh, that might not be working in aesthetics, they need that hands-on. They need more time on tissue. That's the one thing that's missing that I, I want to figure out how to get them more time on tissue. Yeah. We've had a, a number of conversations um, on this podcast with uh, radiologists or people that are looking into ultrasound guided injections or using ultrasound to locate uh, occlusions to not traumatize patient with 300,000 units of highlays, um, you know, pumping them for hours <laughs> on end, um, potentially yeah. doing a, a scan on high risk areas, maybe such as temples, you know, to, before they inject. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, have you looked into it? Is it something that potentially you want to add? to the aesthetic immersion course in terms of, you know, promoting a safer way potentially to do these treatments? Because it seems like it's inevitable that as this technology becomes more and more popular and people start learning how to do it, that it it will start separating um, the practitioners potentially on, you know, safe, effective treatments and having that, that resource there um, when you need it. Yeah. And I, and I was talking to another uh, provider, another colleague of mine. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about bringing ultrasound on, you know, cause I think it's safe. He goes, oh, Lori, how many of occlusions have you had? I go, he goes, it's not going to prevent you from having more occlusions. <laughs> I'm like, none. So 
I don't know. The one thing that I, I have seen firsthand is that sometimes the handheld units, I think can be kind of cumbersome. It takes time. It's great in that, I think, in a research facility or an educational facility, but in clinical practice, we're busy. And to, to pick it up and grab your cell phone and try to connect the Bluetooth with the cell phone and you're waiting for this to turn on and wait for this to turn on, and then you're trying to gel them up and you're trying to get the Bluetooth going, it took a lot of time. And I don't think I'd have time in my practice to do that. So seeing that and being firsthand watching that with, with someone I was training, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to get one of those. If I get one, it's going to be a standalone unit, flip the switch, go rather than uh, some kind of a Bluetooth connector. So I think there's, I think there's a place for it. I, I think there's a place for it, but the problem is if we have that device, we're responsible for reading it and ultrasound is its own specialty. So I haven't flipped the switch on it yet. I think we are going to bring it into a static immersion and bring Stella down and kind of maybe Leone and kind of bring them into to do some education on it. Cause I think it's great. I think it's a great adjunct. Um, me, myself, every time I do pure from fossa or temples, I wish I had an ultrasound. I'm like, Oh, I wish I had one. So our chin. So there's areas where I know I would use it. Cause right now I'm thinking I want it and I don't have it. So I, we will probably bring it in, but it's going to be a flip the switch already plugged in to a, uh, to an iPad or something. Some of the units, it's going to be very quick and easy to do. That's conducive to our busy environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very reassuring that my take on it is exactly the same as you, um, you know, it'd be nice to have that simple knowledge. I'm never going to claim to be an expert of ultrasound, just like, you know, you can't give a foundation injector trainer, sorry, a trainee, you know, all the skills in one day. It's, it's going to be something that we probably learn about over life. But, you know, if you can do that simple scan on one area, a fixed point, and if there's a big juicy vessel that you weren't expecting, then awesome, you've avoided it and, and potential blindness or something else. But, you know, mm-hmm. the intricacies of sort of managing occlusions and things, you know, who knows? Maybe you can pick up that skill or or, or see something obvious on your own scanner. But I, I reckon it will be, you know, there'll be experts within within their own locality who who might be sort of mini referral centers. And if you've got a real problem and a, and a difficult occlusion, you call upon that help, just like you would refer for any other me- medical specialty. Yeah. Or maybe someone's going to invent a really interesting and smart piece of software that makes it very easy for people to read, but we'll see. I, don't know. I think that's too simplistic. Yeah, I, I wish that I wish there was, but I think that it seems too simple. Yeah, well, that's a challenge out there for anyone that's listening that's uh, wants got some spare time. <laughs> um, Laurie, what, what do you mean by mentorship in in injectables when you're training? Um, I, I think I know what it means, and I think I know what you know trainees want. It, it's basically more hands-on, but d- d- does it mean more than that to you? You know, I, I, we look at mentor, we have a, men, instead of a men, membership program with our school, we have a mentorship program because we look at it as a two-way street. I think that mentoring somebody, it, it's, it's two ways. You, I learn just as much from them as they learn from me. And I think that it's mentorship is really in supporting and being a sounding board and being there for somebody when they need you. So it's not just that hands-on, you know, I'm going to show you how to inject. It's being there for questions and concerns and problems. So um, I I think that's, we have a mentorship program where every month we go on a Zoom with our our, um, members from around the world. And we talk talk back and forth on Zoom and we talk about problems and we have a little educational piece every month. And like, here's lips, here's blah, blah, blah. Here's the anatomy, go do lips and let's talk about it next month. So, and like, people will come back and I had this problem or I had this problem or I had a lump or I had this and, and uh, we can really talk back and forth. And I think in a safe environment, it's really, really good because people can really feel open and um, 
not feel judged and they can learn. It, yeah. It's very conducive to learning. So I think mentorship can mean a lot of things. We did have a listener question. I can't remember who to reference to. I'll, I'll find it at the end and we'll shout them out. But someone asked a question about, you know, you train some you know, new injectors and, and they learn simple stuff. Presumably everyone's got their own speed of how, how quickly they learn and, and develop and so on. But do you think there's a defined time where an injector is free to go out into the real world and, and start, you know, taking money off people? Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Um, when I was at the, my last conference, I had a couple uh, nurse practitioners walk up to me and said, you know what? We, um, we're so excited. We've just started doing aesthetics and we've just put a lease down. We're going to open our clinic and open a practice. And they just started doing aesthetics. Wow. And I, I almost fell over. I couldn't breathe. Yeah. I said, you guys, <laughs> you don't know how hard this is. You don't know how what it entails. It's like you don't know what you don't know. Um, and if you guys are familiar with that Dunning-Kruger curve where like you're <laughs> brand new and you have all the confidence in the world and then you still don't have that... Con- you, you lose all your confidence after a year or so because you're like, there's so many things, so many things I could get into trouble with. And I think the more we learn, the less confident we are and the more cautious we are. Um, and I think that's smart. I think it's a smart cautiousness that we that we have. But when you don't know, then you're not... You don't know what to be careful of. Yeah. So it, it's tough. I think I do notice though that when 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 uh, our students or when injectors are new, it's very much like paint by number. They're really looking at where they're injecting, how they're looking at the syringe, how much am I injecting, one tenth, and they'll always say, tell, ask me like, how much should I inject? I'm like, I don't know. Look at the tissue, and they'll kind of inject a little bit, and and then I'll I'll help them like, okay, stop, take the needle out. So it's really like paint by number. As an injector becomes more experienced and more advanced, they come out of that paint by number and they look at the effect that they're caught, that they're creating, not how much, but what's it doing to the tissue. And that's where they cross over into that little bit more of a experienced advanced component. And then they just need that time on tissue. Um, so I don't know when you let someone go, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, my staff, I watch them inject. I listen to their questions. I, I, I make sure they know ana- the anatomy. I know what, what their needle's in, what we're doing. So um, it's it's important to me for that. But it, it, that's tough. That's kind of a loaded question. It's hard. Yeah. Sorry, that question was from Sylvia Matty based in Michigan. She's an MP. Do you know her? No. No. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, thank you, Sylvia, for the question. <laughs> um, so when you've got your, your courses running, how do you sort of put people together who are of maybe similar skill sets or knowledge bases, or is it a one size fits all kind of approach? Because I'm assuming that you have to move at different speeds for different levels of competence and experience. How do you sort of account for all those differing skill sets and knowledge levels? Yeah, that's a good question. So it, it, all everybody gets the same didactic as far as our, our advanced, our foundations of advanced aesthetics course, they get the same. To, but when they come to us to do hands-on, they might be at different levels. Like yesterday, um, I had a nurse who's been injecting for a few years and she wanted to do tear troughs. I'm like, okay, good. You want to use a cannula needle? She's like, I want to use a cannula. Okay, let's use the, let's use a cannula under the, in the tear troughs. So I helped her do that. So we're here to help those providers and we'd be with them to come to whatever level they want to be at. So, but we ask them how long you've been injecting, what you're comfortable with. Usually newer injectors, we're, we're going to do cheeks, we'll do nasal labials, we'll do something simple, just where they can kind of feel it. Um, but but at more advanced injectors, we go to their level. We If they want to do lips, and they've been doing it for a little while, we do lips. I don't like teaching lips when they're brand new. I don't believe it's an, a, a beginner area. <laughs> Under eyes and lips, no. 
Yeah, we so. agree. So, and you know, you did mention nasolabial. I mean, technically, I think it's actually quite an easy thing to both do and also see the effect, but of course, quite a dangerous area. So, do, do you incorporate that in your foundation training? Um, as far as anatomy, yes, yes, that's all in there. Anatomy. We go into anatomy heavily mm-hmm. um, because then you need to know where your landmines are. I always say there's the dumpsters right next to the playground. <laughs> and what about you know when do you drop in the practical training for something like nasolabial fold? We do a lot less of it nowadays. I don't know about you, but I'm doing a lot. I do piriform, but I do I don't do nasolabials a lot. But we will do them when it's needed, um, and we will do usually. We teach needles with new injectors, not cannulas, but we'll teach needles with new injectors. And um, we will do nasolabials if the patient needs it and kind of talk about the, the depth of where it needs to go and where that artery might be as far as five millimeters, maybe below the skin, kind of what, what depth they should put the plane of the tissue as far as the dermal filler. So, so when we're doing nasolabials, it's always after we've done mid face mm-hmm. and kind of, kind of help to kind of even out that maybe a little pseudotosy that might happen in that nasolabial area. There's always a cause for it. I mean, there's some people that have big cheeks and they're always going to have nasolabial folds. Yeah. And like we say, you know, it's kind of like having big chest and you're going to have cleavage. Yeah. So, you know, if you have big cheeks, you're not going to not have a nasolabial fold. Yeah. Yeah. So patients get it when I talk about chest size and cleavage because <laughs> they're, they're going to have it. Yeah, people look yeah. weird without nasolabial folds. It's, it's not, doesn't look human. They look like monkeys. Sometimes. Yeah, they do. And I tell people that even a four-year-old's got tear troughs and nasolabial folds. So yeah, yeah. go look at a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that's quite controversial in the industry at the moment in general is, you know, how far to go? How far do you take someone's aesthetic in terms of, you know, extreme treatments or trying to, you know, change their identity? And you've got people on both sides of the spectrum. I mean, we've had people on here like uh, Dr. Har- Steve Harris from the UK, who's got a very conservative view on this over-augmented alien type of look um, that he talks about. Where do you stand on that on that spectrum in terms of following patients' wishes? Because at the end of the day, it's their face. It's like, you know, in some ways it's art, I guess you could say. I mean, some people like it, some people won't. Who are we to say what's artistic and what's not? But I'm curious to know what your what your take on it is and what do you instill and teach in your students as far as you know the aesthetic goal um that's a that's a really good question you know i'm conservative you probably know what my yes. answer is going to be sure okay so with people who come in who kind of want to change want to change their look or look unnatural i i try really hard to discuss what their look is with them what their natural anatomy is i see a lot of overtreated faces and I think there's one of two reasons why you see overtreated or overfilled faces. Number one, I think the provider doesn't know anatomy and they don't know what level to put it in. They don't know where the fat pads have, have disintegrated and they don't know what to replace. They don't know where the bones resorb. They they're just injecting to inject. Number two, I think they want to make money. So I think there's two reasons why we see these overtreated faces. And um, when someone comes in and they want, I see that they're overtreated, I generally will will try to either have them dissolve or I will try to help them look more natural. And I see a lot of people who get something where they will, they will forget what they looked like before. They always work off their new you. They work off the new me. Like I get treated. That's my new me. I want more. That's my new me. I want more. That's my new me. So these people start getting 
like a like a perception drift. And Dr. Sabrina Fabi wrote a, an article on perception drift, and their perception of themselves drifts. Um, so it's up to me to go get the old picture and go look. This is what you look like. You see how much better you look now. You don't need more. And this doesn't go away in a year. It doesn't go away in a year. This filler might be here ten years. So it doesn't mean I need to put stuff in you every year. Let's just look at you. So I, a lot of times I'll, I'll tell patients, no, I'll say, you know, you look great. Don't be overcritical of yourself. If you need it, I promise you, I will tell you, let's look at you in six months. I go, let's just peek every six months. doesn't mean you'll need something, but maybe in six months, you know? So I, I always tell people, just look at yourself, summer, winter, summer, winter, every six months, don't go, be overcritical. Um, so I have a tendency to, to, you know, to be a little bit more conservative. Now I do have patients who are transitioning from either male to female or female to male, and that's where I do need to ch- change their what they want their look a little bit. And that's just to make it a little more fluid. So knowing what the male attributes are and the female attributes are in aesthetics is important to kind of help with the look that someone is going for, um, but still make them look natural in yeah. themselves as far as their anatomy. So it, it seems like perhaps our industry or the, the providers are part of the problem in allowing people to drift away from their natural look or not developing the relationship where they have that, you know, that trust and belief in what you're saying, because, you know, that, that commercial element is always there and you've mentioned people wanting to make money. So I think that Mm -hmm. potentially highlights the importance of that relationship and that trust with your practitioner, whether they be a doctor or a nurse in that they will trust you when you tell them your honest opinion on something. And if you don't have that, then, it seems like that's the problem that's created is we've done it to ourselves through potentially irresponsible treatments or not taking time to develop that relationship. I, I agree 1000%. And that's why I think that like my consults are 45 minutes long. Hmm. Uh, you, We need to develop that rapport. We need to develop that trust. The patients need to know us and know that we have their best interest at hand. We're their providers. We owe that to them. This is a cash-based business. And it's very easy for providers to blur their ethical lines. And I try to keep providers centered. I don't want, I want them to keep their ethical lines centered. I don't want them to start looking at money and I'll make more commission if I put another syringe in their face. No, then we're starting to go away from what's medically ethical. Yeah. And I I guess from from a business owner's perspective, I've always been of the belief that you should build your business slowly. If you try and make a quick buck out of people and try and maximize the, you know, the, the total number of fillers or units you can put in someone's face, you know, every session, eventually it will catch up with you. You'll develop a very um, difficult client base. People won't trust you. Whereas if, you know, when you're honest with people and you say, look, you don't need more, come back and see me in three months, go and spend your money on something else. I'm, you know, you develop slowly over time. It might take you longer to get there, but it's a more stable business. It's more reliable. You don't have to work on advertising as much because people trust you so much. They're making recommendations to their friends or people they meet out at bars or dinners. And, you know, it, it just seems like the slow and steady ethical approach is sustainable and is probably better for, the, for this industry as a whole. In I'm cheering you both on yeah. here. You're singing much. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think that when I tell patients no, they trust me more. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. So, and, and that's where we get our referrals. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, you know, not, you know, you can't have a goal to do more, but if that patient really does need more, they're much more likely to let you do that if, if you build that, that, that trust and that, that bond before, because they'll say, sure, whatever you've done so far has been awesome. Let's go. 
Whereas if you try and do that from date one, I always joke with my patients, I say, this, today's the first date. We're not going to go to fourth base today. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's true. You've got, you've got to build it up. Right? I love it. Yeah. Which today we're just going to hold hands and, and nothing else. No, no, wham, no wham, bam. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's now, so Laurie, cute. I'd love to know about your, your clinic. Where do you work? Who's there? What, what other services are going on there? Okay. So my clinic is in Southern California. I am um, in Orange County, so I'm about 15 minutes from Disneyland, if you've ever heard of that happiest place yeah, on Earth. Yeah, I've been there many times. I'm going to take my kids there one day, so I'll, I'll come and visit. Soon. Then you have to come. Come visit me. Absolutely. Come across the pond. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, so, so it's pretty nice out here. And um, like I said, my clinic is about 4,300 square feet. I have um, about seven rooms, plus the school is in the back. I currently have a nurse practitioner, an RN, um, a front office manager, esthetician, uh, back office manager, and a medical assistant. And I'm hiring another nurse practitioner um, interviewing now as we speak. I don't want to get real big. I kind of want to stay small. So if uh, when I hire another mid-level provider, that's probably going to be it for me. Um, our team is a wonderful team. We gel. There's no drama. Um, what's more important to me is to hire somebody who has the same values as we do, the same patient prioritization as we do, safety, and we can teach some of the skills. As long as, as, long as somebody has good eye-hand coordination, we can probably teach them. So um, it's more important to me to, to look for somebody now that isn't going to rock the boat with the team. So mm-hmm. um, we're, so that's where we're at. So it's, it's pretty cool. So it's, yeah. it's awesome. We have a great, great clinic here. Culture is so important in business, isn't it? When you develop develop a team of people and principles in which you run your business and the way you want things done ethically, you know, you bring in someone into that, into that culture um, and it can destroy it. It doesn't take much for sort of one rotten apple to to destroy your entire business. So, you know, from a business owner's perspective, I understand how how important that is that you bring people in that complement what you've already got. Yeah. In fact, my hiring process, um, I always give my interviewees a test they all have a they get an aesthetic test so they've got to know like they have to answer like what's g prime and what's rheology and what's the mechanism of action of toxins i I need to know that somebody knows that because i'm looking for an experienced provider second if they pass that the second interview is an injection interview so i pick the model they come in they do a full facial assessment and fillers you can't fake that you can't fake an injection interview the third process is they come in and shadow for a day, all my staff. So when they come in and spend an hour with each one of my staff, my staff is really kind of interviewing that person. So my staff is going to have a chance to kind of say yay or nay or what they feel about that that person as far as the last part of the the interview process. Yeah, that's awesome. So if anyone's listening in the OC, you know what to look forward to now in your interviews. <laughs> you, can, you can mug up and, and get your cheat notes started. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of uh, very vocal and big on Instagram. Have you noticed any difference between, you know, what you're providing in the States and, and, and other countries? Any significant differences or do you think it's all much of a muchness? I think we're very similar. I think most of us that are like-minded providers. I think we're very similar in different countries. Of course, we carry different products. You know, I wish we had Profilo here and we don't. Yeah, um, still waiting. Darn it. Mm. <clears throat> but, um, but I wish, you know, but, but I think we're very similar. Um, I, I only see some that I just kind of um, cringe. And if, if I see, like if I'm on Instagram and I see a provider that the techniques really, I think are not safe, I just don't follow them. Yeah. 
So I, they don't worry me then because I don't watch them. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a weird thing with Instagram. Like, like you say, you've got to kind of like what someone's doing and saying. And because if you follow that person, you're sort of aligning with them, even though you don't want to. And, and I think people get funny about that. Like, why, why don't you follow me? And why, don't, why are you liking my photos? Well, because I don't like your work. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. But uh, yeah, it does get a bit political. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's 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 tough. And you know, and I don't like people are like, you don't follow very, very many people. But I really kind of follow people I know, uh, providers I know, colleagues I know, nurses I've trained. It's like that's kind of who I follow. I don't I don't kind of haphazardly, you know, just follow anybody. I. I you know, I like to make it real. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just have a harem of friends. You've got to know who they yeah. are and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Is there any treatments that, that you don't do or that you stay away from? I mean, we spoke about nasolabial folds as an area, maybe tear troughs is another one which should be approached with um, a lot of care and um, patient, sorry, careful patient selection. But what stuff do you avoid? And, you know, what treatments are you looking to bring in, bring on in the future? Like what's, what's your eye on it as, as we sort of move into, you know, 2022 and beyond? Yeah, there's so many, there's so many neat things out there. Um, I have, I have two no goes in my clinic that no one's allowed to do, including me. That's nose fillers and glabellar filler. Yeah. So there's two areas that I, I just don't allow in this clinic. And I know lots of people do nose fillers and that's fine. I think that's a provider choice. Uh, but I don't choose to put my patients at that risk of possible blindness yeah. for a bump in the nose or a wrinkle in the, in the glabella. So I just, that's a no go for myself and my clinic. I used to, you know, I used to do nose fillers, never had a problem until I learned more. And the more I learned, the more cautious I'm becoming. Um, I want to get out of here unscathed, hopefully. <laughs> So, um, but I think as far as new, what's kind of new and upcoming, I think I'm using a lot more Renuva right. in my clinic. And that, well, that is, is something. What yeah, is Renuva? That's new to me. It's a, it's an adipose fat matrix. So it is actually made from donor tissue. Right. And if you think about it's harvested from adipose tissue and it's acellular, the cells are removed. So basically it's kind of like the honeycomb, but the honey's removed and you're injecting the honeycomb and the body knows to grow honey on it. So the body grows fat on the matrix. Oh, wow. And I'm finding that it is amazing because say if we have panfacial volume loss, we can do PLLA or, you know, HDR and it gives us a dermal thickening, but not a lot of volume because we've lost fat. And I love to replace like with like. So if we've lost some deep fat pads, we can throw a little bit in there and we can really kind of help grow the fat back um, on that matrix. And I find that a lot of patients like to have something more natural. I think that natural um, tissue, the the biostimulants, the regenerative tissues, I think kind of the way of the future and less of the the fillers a yep. little bit. So I think that might be the direction we're going. But I've been using a lot of Renewable. I'll mix it with Sculptra. I'll mix it with Hyperclue Radius. Or I'll do it straight for different areas. Um, on oh, the I don't know if you've things. noticed our, our jaws have dropped. Yeah, we just need to extend this podcast by another hour. I hope you've got nothing. Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, I just well, opened a can of worms. No, no. What you can do is link us up with this company. That sounds amazing. I've, I've, I've not heard of that type of product before. And it's an amazing company. That's why I was, I was back in New York, actually. They invited me back there to go through the company. And it is donor tissue. So the respect that this company has for the donors and the recipients is amazing. And the level of sterility and technique uh, to harvest and manufacture this is bar none. I've never seen a company that's that's this concerned with the level of product that they that they provide so quite impressive yeah 
how do you, I'll let you guys how, how do you okay. spell it? What how do you come on um, the company is MTF Biologics. MTF Biologics, okay. And the, the practice is called Renuva, R-E-N-U-V-A, Renuva. Wow. And what sort of results do you get from that? I mean, how dramatic um, are they? How much, it takes, and, how you, and how do you control how much fat's going to grow? Right. So so say I get, I, I buy it, it comes in one and a half and three cc syringes, and it's thick, almost like a thick sour cream. It's thick. So I add saline and lidocaine to it to make it almost like a hyperglute radius or like a thick whipped cream. And I'll put it in with a cannula. Um, say I put a, a cc and a half, say in a pan facial area, I will probably get about half, about 60 to 80% of, of that filled back in with fat within about three to six months. So I won't do it earlier. I won't retreat it earlier than six. Um, and I might even wait a full six, uh, th- three months, I'm sorry, three months at the earliest. I might wait a full six months to retreat it. I want that. I want to let the body do its thing. Let it grow, let it expand, and then see what I need. You don't want to overtreat, so you just go layer by layer, kind of like the sculptors. You know, do do layers with it. So it's called an adipose tissue matrix. Is that right? Adipose fat matrix. All right, um, my mind is blown. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of research on this. <laughs> I was going to ask you because you know you do train for Galderma, and I know that you're a big fan of uh, using Sculptra. And recently, it's my understanding that there's some new indications, so body indications, and a, a better way of reconstituting as well. So, what, you know, what did you learn? What were your takings from that recent update through Galderma? Yeah, we don't have. There's no body indication, but there's facial indications okay. um, for different areas of the face, and it can be super periosteal all the way up to subdermal, which is great. The new mix is what's different. Is years ago it was five cc's, and people got nodules. So now we've learned the total mix is eight cc's. And what we are doing is mixing it the same day and injecting it, which was unheard of before. We'd always let it sit for, I always let it sit for three days. Well, now what we're doing is putting five cc's of exostatic water in that sculpture and shaking it for a minute. I bought that little vortex. If you saw my Instagram, I bought that little vortex. That thing is golden. (laughs) That is golden. I got off Amazon. That thing is amazing. It's just a little, it's just it spins at 5,600 RPM. So when you only have five cc's in there, it beats the heck out of it. Yeah. So it splits the methylcellulose from the, the PLLA and you're going to get a foam at the top. So I mix that up for a little while and then I'll add the next three cc's of saline in there and you'll mix it again. And I turn it upside down. So the, the plug is on the bottom and I let the foam kind of give it like one or two minutes, let the foam settle to the top. And then you could pull out the milky PLLA and you have no clogging at all in your needle or your cannula. I mean, sculpture seems to have taken off pretty well in the States, but yeah, generally in many countries, including here in Australia, it's a bit of a myth, uh, sorry, a sort of a niche product still. Mm. You know, there are practitioners and, and I, I refer to Dr. Kath Porter if I've, if I've got anyone who needs sculpture because I don't do it myself. But I mean, it never really took it off. So I'll be interested to see now, you know, there's kind of a re- rebranding or relaunching almost of the yeah. product, whether it will be taken up better. I know in Australia that a lot of the reason were the adverse events that people were getting. Um, it's because they're injecting through the mouth. Well, I know there was, <laughs> I know people were doing intraorally. As I said, they weren't using right dilutions. They were injecting not in the right plane. And I think that practitioners, it just, you know how this industry works, Laurie and Jack, you know, something happens and then Chinese whispers and, and sort of something that started out as maybe you know, an issue with tech, with the way that we were constituting it all of a sudden becomes it's this dangerous oh, yeah. poison that no one can use. And then 
you know, everyone listens to what everyone else says and then all of a sudden you've got yeah. a product that's fallen out of favour. And I yeah. think that's probably what happened here, just a couple of those disaster stories early on. Yeah, but even globally, you know, grew up in the UK and yeah. it's just not a, a big thing. Sort of it's a niche product still. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. yeah. We use, we use a lot of it here. We use a lot of it here and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, the, just when you can get that dermal thickening, the skin yeah. takes on this beautiful glow, a really nice youthful glow. And I've never seen another product do that except <laughs> I'm seeing Renova do it because <laughs> we're getting the growth factors with the fat cells. Mm. So it's doing it too. My mind's still going back to that Renova. <laughs> yeah, it? Renova. 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 Could you uh-huh. mix that up with PRP to give it like a super boost? I suppose I haven't done that, but I don't know. Idea, no. I don't know why you. I don't know why you couldn't. Yeah, I mix. I'll mix it with hyperdilute radius or Sculptra. So I don't see why you couldn't. If you dilute it down too much, you're not going to get a lot of fat. Yeah, yeah. Um. If somebody is really, really, really thin, I won't. I won't. I won't. Split it with anything. I will just put it, put it, renew it. And how how long does it last? I mean, it just it's it just their takes, it's their it own takes, fat, right? So it's forever, and basically. Fat, yeah, fat lasts. Oh gosh, five years. Our own fat cells have a life of like five years. I'll have to look it up, but I think it's it's a long time. Our own fat cells. So it's their own. Like people ask me, how long does sculpture last? Well, how long does your collagen last? Yeah. You're building your own collagen. The FDA approval was two and a half years. But that's because the studies only, only went out that far and they stopped the studies. But people were still like 85% satisfied. Yeah. So people think it lasts two and a half years, but it's really, it's your own tissue. So when you build your own tissue, you're going to keep it. You're just going to have more while you age than you would have had. Yeah. Fat or collagen. And sorry, just a couple more questions on this product. I keep well, I'm mindful <laughs> of time. Have you got yeah. time if we carry on, Laurie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So is there any um, complications? You said it's like a honey or like, sorry, like a whipped cream, you said. Um, so, I mean, occlusions, like what's the, what are the what are the major risks that go the sort of go along? Yeah. What are you injecting it with? I haven't. Yeah, I haven't. I inject it with a cannula, a twenty two gauge cannula, and I'm subdermal, so the risk of an occlusion is like next to nothing. Right. Um, I do I do kind of uh, mix it down, so I put a little, like I said, lidocaine with a little saline in it to make it a little bit more of a like a hyperdilute radius consistency, uh, like a whipped cream, like yeah. a thin whipped like a whipped cream. So I can kind of lay it in in threads and just fan it in. I do have my patients massage it just like I do with my sculpture and hyperglute radius. So I give all my patients a personal massager that is, um, don't go there, guys. It is a, (laughs) (laughs) it is like a little handheld massager, but it's kind of larger on the tip. So what I do is we give, we give that to them and I have the massage. I say couple, 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 couple minutes a day couple times a day so two times a day couple minutes couple times and couple weeks so i don't do the the sculpture on those for five days the five 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 i do the couple minutes couple minutes couple times a day couple weeks and i knock on wood not had a nodule um and i like to keep it activated and keep it massaging around there so the little vibration device doesn't they don't pull on their skin and tug on their skin they just you know, put their washing soap on their moisture cream and they just rub the heck out of it. And it's really comfortable for the patient. So I just give one of those to each one of the sessions that I do. You know, like someone gets one and they're doing three or four sessions of, of sculpture, then they can have the same little massager, but that works really, really well. That's fascinating. Now to pivot away, just to some other questions. I know we've kept you for a while. You said you haven't had any occlusions, but what, what is your weirdest or worst complication that you have had? And tell us about that. Probably my weirdest, I, I've had one 
abscess uh, where I put a cannula in, did a cannula, and about three weeks later, she had an abscess. Um, and my protocol for, for and I clean with like hypochlorous acid everywhere, kind of crazy. So I'd never had that before, but the only thing I could think of was my protocol was for someone to not put makeup on or anything for 24 hours after we do any injectables. Looking back and realizing that the cannula hole, I use 23 gauge cannulas, uh, that the cannula hole was a little bit bigger than a needle hole, probably took longer to seal up. And she said she put makeup on the next day, probably auto-inoculated that with a little staff is my is my thought so i changed my protocol to nothing on the face except for soap and water for 48 hours when i use cannulas um so that was my first and only one i've had of that the weirdest thing that happened to me was happened this last year i was doing chin filler i always keep my thumb very very firmly planted on the lower mandibular border maybe because i want to block a lot of the vasculature i don't want anything going retrograde and prevent the product from going down i grab on here and hold tight so I'm holding tight against the, 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 the chin area and I'm going in and injecting straight in and doing just some projection. And the patient goes, I feel something in my mouth. And oh. I said, what? She goes, I feel something in my mouth. So I, I look, I pull her lip open and in her frenulum, in the frenulum is a bubble of filler. Wow. So I'm like, how did that happen? You know, my fingers there, granted, I probably should have pressed, been pressing harder, but how in the heck did it get in the frenulum? Because our, our mentalis is, it originates on the bone. It's right here. It's stuck to the bone. Yeah. So how it could go up? And so when I talked to Sebastian about it, I'm like, tell me, what the heck? And he <laughs> said, that's kind of weird. He said, unless she had a, a naturally split mentalis. So I started researching that and people do have split mentalises. Yeah. So it probably just squirted right up in there. But she had a little bubble, a little bubble in her frenulum. So we just popped and expressed it and it was fine. Yeah, we, we actually, this came up when we were uh, speaking with Steve Weiner a couple of podcasts ago. So, you know, no one actually really knows. We, we have to get Sebastian Cotifana to tell us, but, you know, people who have a cleft chin like myself, generally the mentalis will be split. It's, it's a bifid or, or two-bellied muscle, but you know, who knows? And the other question I had was maybe, I was going to say, maybe that patient, was she elderly, the patient? No, she was young. She right, was young. Okay. She's on my Instagram. She's on my Instagram. I showed it. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, anyway, that is a weird one. So what did yeah. you do? You just sort of said, oh, that looks a bit weird. Let's just leave that. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of crazy. I said, that's never happened before. That's kind of crazy. I said, well, let me just, so I just, I just, popped it and expressed it and oh, yeah. let it sit. And it was perfectly fine. Wow. Fair enough. Yeah. Aspiration. Let's talk about that quickly. What well, are your- <laughs> oh, oh, boy. That's the rapid fire question. All oh, right. Okay. I thought we were yeah. getting there. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's move to the rapid fire yeah. questions because we, we have been going for a while. So we always end the Injector Diary podcast with our rapid fire questions. You're not allowed to think. You just have to give us an answer for these ones. So David, you can go with the <laughs> Oh, this is dangerous, five. you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is your number one go-to toxin and why? If you only had to have one. Dysport. Ooh, and Dysport why? because it's... I, it, that's my. That's the only one I use in my office, and um, I use it because it has more molecules of toxin in each FDA-approved dose, so it lasts a little bit longer, wears off a little bit slower. Okay. okay. Um, number one filler, and and I don't mean range. I mean actual filler within that range. What could you not live without? Uh, if I was stuck on a deserted island, it would probably be wrestling lift. I can do almost anything with that. Okay. That used to be called perlane. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Perlane. Okay. 
and, and, and I guess it's kind of obvious, but that's sort of your workhorse. You can use it pretty much all over right. the place. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's the time. We can put it almost anywhere. Fair enough. Now, you did mention cannulas. What, what's your number one size and brand and gauge and all the rest of it? So we can't get them in America. So I have to get them from like Hong Kong. Uh, the cannulas are 23 gauge. 40 and 50 millimeter. So one and a half and two inch cannulas. Mm. Um, we know that 27, 25s are on that more dangerous side. And we have some occlusions with those and 22s are garden hoses. So yeah. I found a 23 and I'm obsessed with it because it glides like a 25, but yet I have a little bit extra safety net with it. And there, I get them from a company called Benev, B-E-N-E-V. It's a company that makes the mirror Q threads. So I order them through them. And um, I know we've asked TSK, and I think they're looking into um, maybe making some 23s. So, okay. I love this podcast. <laughs> All these little gold nuggets. <laughs> yeah. Of, I've never heard that brand. So, that's really okay. interesting. Okay. What, what do they cost, if you don't mind me asking, for a box? Or is it sort of cheaper or is it more expensive to bring it in? Um, the 20, the 20, I, I don't know. I think they're like $5 a can. I don't even know. I don't okay. know. I just know I it's like them and they're safer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not ridiculous. All right, aspiration. We're here. We're finally here. <laughs> what do you think? Do you aspirate or do you not? And and then one thousand percent, yes. Okay, one thousand percent. And my thought on this is, give me a good reason not to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you did reference uh, the the paper. I can't remember the what's the title of the paper again. It was by Greg Goodman. Well, yeah, the committee of the. <laughs> The, get the consensus paper. And people, people, at least here in America, they look at it as a research paper. Yes. And it's not. It's a consensus paper. It's yeah. it's a group who got together um, of, of, of individuals. And, and you know, I, I know some of them on that on that group. Um, and and decided that since it's not 100 percent accurate, don't do it. And they recommended against it. I think that's the most irresponsible thing they probably could have put out there because a lot of people think that they shouldn't aspirate because they don't know why they shouldn't aspirate. Um, I find that a lot of people who don't aspirate don't know how to aspirate properly. They're wiggling the needles or almost dropping the needles. And I realize that's why you don't like to aspirate is because you don't know how to properly. Hmm. But even if it's not hundred percent accurate, the amount of flashbacks that I've gotten and my colleagues have gotten along the course of us injecting has probably prevented thousands and thousands of possible vascular occlusions mm. so i don't have a good reason not to mm. yeah that's I, a great answer i think i think the reason i've heard when i'm talking to people like um lee walker is that people who get a negative flashback then think oh i'm safe and then will inject with impunity because they think that they're all good when in actual fact the needle tip may have moved um, and then they think they're they're home free. So I think that would be, from my perspective, I'm not obviously not a doctor or a nurse, but just thinking about it logically, that would be the only reason why you wouldn't was that people think they're safe and they're not. They still got to inject yeah. all the you know the right protocols. You know, keep your needle tip moving, make sure you're in the right plane. You know, don't inject with too much pressure. All those sorts of things. Yeah, but actually, I think yes. as Laurie said that yeah. that argument work, works both ways. Yes. Um, yeah, and you know that paper. I know all of the people on the paper, or most of the people on the paper. So, you know, they're friends as well as colleagues. And I think it's good to stimulate debate. I really do. Uh, and to challenge, you know, the dogma that, you know, just like you said, if, if it's negative, you're good to go. I mean, that, that's fine to talk about and debate. Uh, one of the things that they suggest is to sort of do micro movements of your needle tip, which, you know, kind of makes sense. Because even if you're in a vessel, 
you sort of come out and, and you move away to a safer place as you're injecting. But my thing that I don't think I've discussed at length with them and challenged them on this is what if you've sort of kebabbed <laughs> a shish kebabbed a, a vessel and you're taking it with you as you go and you just keep on going. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't think there is a right or a wrong way. There, there, there may be better ways for parts of the face and you know, if you're using a cannula, then you're you're safer, but you're not safe. Yeah. And you know, if your aspiration technique is crap, don't bother because you're kidding yourself and everything in between. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, I love asking that question. It's so good. <laughs> you know, and 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 to kind of expand on that, I I see so many false aspirations. Mm. Don't even bother aspirating if you're not clearing the needle of product. And I think that people don't understand rheology and physics and they don't understand that if you have a stretchy product you're not going to pull back for a second and clear that needle of product it's still going to be stuck in that needle so that that aspiration is useless Mm -hmm. and what we did was we put this it's on youtube we put this on youtube where we took all of the all the all the fillers we have in the country right now and we put red dye in a in a cup and we primed the needles and we went to aspirate the red dye back into the syringe and and it, some of them we could we could never unprime it. We could never get the the red water back up into it. Um, then what we would do is we would squirt it out. We would try to deep. We would deep prime on the ones we could. We we pull it back and let that little air burp back in, and then we would bring this to the filler back up to the hub, and then we would try to aspirate again. And every time we deep primed or unprimed that needle, we would get within one second we would get the the red the red water back in the in the syringe so it aspirated immediately so i think a lot of people are false aspirating that they have a stretchy product in the hub and they're they're you know injecting they've injected before so it's full of product they're putting they're injecting again and then they're pulling back for a couple seconds when actually that that needle that hub might not clear for 15 seconds if not more or ever because of the needle size length and the product viscosity yeah so that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think a few people have done that study. I think Tim Pierce might have done something similar on on his YouTube. But there's definitely other papers, and I think you're right. So you're just basically saying don't prime your needle, put put the needle in, aspirate, and then obviously if you get a flashback, then well, definitely move. If you don't, Absolutely. then then do you stay where you are and then you know inject down and, and do your bolus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I always inject with an unprimed needle, always. Perfect. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's, that's a good tip. All right. So we've got two more questions and we'll let you go, I promise. What is the biggest mistake you've made? Could be business, could be as an injector and sort of mm-hmm. what was the takeaway or how did you sort of adjust adjust your practice moving forward? Um, picking the wrong business partner. Okay. And um, no, not reading the contract. <laughs> oh god not not gideon no gideon's wonderful the one before he's gideon listening going, what <laughs> oh god no oh, i'm so sorry no gideon's amazing he's he's the most easygoing guy in the whole world um no uh, my previous business partner is somebody who kind of wooed me into working there and gave me part of the business and we went from one to four clinics within five years wow. and um he ended up being um um you can say not a good person. An asshole. So, yeah. so I had, yeah, narcissist. So yeah. Um, I stepped away. I said, I'm, I'm leaving. You know, I'm leaving and I'm, I'm just, I don't have a job, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a month and I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not going to be your partner anymore. And um, my lawyer and myself both missed something in the contract that allowed him to take 
everything away from me. Oh my God. So yeah. Hate your contract. So, um, so it, yeah, right. So read your contract, every single word and have a couple lawyers read it. Yeah. But, um, you know, lesson learned, you know, it's one of those things where, um, he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about how I don't want to manage about how I don't want to be what kind of partner. I don't want to be. Um, and, um, you know, it's like you, when bad things happen to you in life and things have happened, you know, where things have happened that just destroy you and, but they always turn around and you are blessed more uh, by what comes along in the future, it puts you into a path that's mm. so much better than it was. And that's happened time and time again. And I always say, God puts you in a path, you know, like you, you just, there's adversity, there's blessings out of adversity. Yeah. And you always have to trust that. I think that's where faith comes in that like, you know, something's better going to happen and something is always better around that corner. And I couldn't be happier where I'm at. And it wouldn't have happened unless that other situation happened. Yeah, oh, that's that's a great lesson. Last question: Where do you see our industry going in the next five to ten years, or even plus? You know, what what do you think is going to change? That's going to revolutionize? Maybe this fat matrix, yeah. but anything else? Right. Um, you know, I I hope, and I'm not one for rules and regulations, but it is the wild west, and I know in Europe there's a lot of uh, problems. I hope that we have something that's going to help. Uh, Patients be able to choose safer providers, be it a certification or or a regular schooling or something where it's going to be more formal and um, patients will able be able to go, oh, you have that certification that I know that at least you have a foundational knowledge or at least I feel I can be safer with you. It worries me about, about patients just hopping from Instagram popular yeah. person to Instagram popular person because I see that all the time. I'm like the fourth one that comes in like, I went here, 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 here. And I'm like, oh, you're Instagram hopper. <laughs> Let me tell you about people. You need to vet your providers, you know? So yeah. um, so I think I think that we need to we need to corral this. It's the wild everybody wants to go into into aesthetics. I don't know about you guys, but I I are but I find that I find that people want to jump into it just because they don't, they want to get away from bedside nursing. Yeah. We have a lot of internal medicine doctors, a lot of ER doctors, a lot of nurses who are like, I went out of the hospital after COVID yeah. and I just want something else. So um, they don't know what they're doing. So we need to make sure that we have standards. Yeah. We yeah, really do. Um, we did have a number of listener questions, but I, to be honest, I think we've, we've ticked them off, even though we didn't sort of specifically ask the question. So thank you for the question from Dr. Stephen Land. He's a, you know, great guy in Newcastle in the UK. We had our old friend Jacinta King. She did send a question that we did answer. Um, I think we've already referenced the question by Sylvia Matti in Michigan and also Marissa Aesthetic NP. She's in Canada. Um, maybe just to complete this, um, she asked, do you think that courses need to be accredited in some way? And I guess who should be, the, you know, how do you create those standards? I mean, I think we sort of answered yeah. that, but it's a tricky question. Well, Canada might be a little bit different, but here in America, we have to have an accredit. We we apply and we have to work. It takes a while to get accredited, which means um, people who aren't licensed in our state, like my state of California, they can come and inject in our class. They can inject patients because we are looked at as an educational facility now, and we offer continuing education units. Mm-hmm. So before we were accredited. We couldn't have anybody come to our state that didn't have a license in our state. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it means a lot to be accredited, um, and then they, people can get um, continuing education hours towards the renewal of their licenses, which is nice too. And, and who's the people who give that accreditation license? Who's the board or the body? We have, there are several companies. The one that we use is called MER, 
um, medical education resources. So there's a, they they accredit lots of different educators in the country, but there's quite quite a few different companies that do it that are um, recognized and accepted. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, this has been a long one. It has, but it's a nice one for a while, but we could have gone for hours, especially about that uh, product. We're going to definitely hit them up. Laurie, thank you. It's been uh, really nice to get to know you and and talk properly. Um, We'll obviously put all of your details at the bottom of the podcast description if people want to reach out, become friends on Instagram. Depends whether she accepts you as a follower or not. She likes if if you get it. It's open. It's open. My husband watches watches it. He's like, you have like 500 more followers. I'm like, I don't know, honey. I'm just working. (laughs) I don't think they manage it for me. So I have my one hour every morning that I get to talk to instagram family and that's that's kind of what yeah. i can do yeah yes. and we'll um we'll also put a link to your uh, training school as well yes. for anyone in the states that Thank wants you. to um look you up and come and learn the art of aesthetic injecting fantastic well we wish you well stay safe happy injecting and we'll speak soon thank you so much you guys great to talk to you thank you for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on instagram at inside aesthetics podcast Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 